All right, so we read through 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. So what I'd like to do is I'll um, reread the first part here and uh, talk through it as I'm going. So we'll be uh, discussing that. So my goal today is to give a bit of an introduction and overview to the idea of officers and to encourage the men of this congregation to look at themselves, to examine themselves, and to examine the other men in the congregation to consider, do you see these qualifications in other men? And if you see some of them lacking, the goal is to consider how can you grow in those and to pursue an intentional effort to make sure that you are fit in any of the areas where you're lacking. The qualifications of officers serve as a template, a blueprint, for what it is that a Christian man ought to pursue being. The qualifications of officer are the qualifications that every Christian man will obtain in glory, and so you might as well try to get them sooner. And so if that's the kind of man that we're going to be built into, then we ought to be those men to the best of our ability now. Now, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be that. And so we depend upon God. So praying for these qualifications, these fruits of the Spirit, is an important part of what we ought to do now. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. And as we pray, thy kingdom come, a part of what we're asking for is the building up and maturing of the church, which includes the development of men fit for officers. We're told to pray for laborers to enter into the field, because there's a lot of work, And there's way too few workers, kind of like the American economy, but there's overpopulation. That's a problem. Stop having kids. Also, don't do productive things. It will destroy the environment. But we need more people. So, the problem with officers is that there's not enough of them, and the ones that we have aren't good enough, including me. And so, what we need to do is to spur each other on and to work harder. And when we work harder and we pray for the Lord of the harvest to bless the harvest, there's an expectation that there will be more, and part of how there will be more is through evangelism, the preaching of the word, and we can see the growth of the people who are currently working with them. So, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, an overseer, he desires a good work. This is an important thing. It's often taught that if a man wants an office, he's not fit for the office. And that's a lie. If you desire an office, what you desire is a good work. Now, there's a danger, right? Some people actually desire the office in order to abuse power. And so you have to watch out for that. You have to look out for people who are abusing power. And so what you do is you judge the power they've already got, which is why we're told to examine how people rule themselves and then to see how do they rule in their own homes. Because if you can't rule your own home, how can you be expected to rule the household of God? And so the qualification, the desire for the office is a part of the qualification. He who desires an office desires a good work. If someone does not want to do the good work and they're already in office, they're exhorted later on to work not as though they're under compulsion, but to do so in such a way that shows the desire to do the good work. And so the desire for the office is a part of the requirement. And that means that you should be stirred on to desire the office. So if you go, this seems like a lot of work. Qualifications seem hard. I'm very comfortable. I would suggest to you that you have a lie about the good life. The good life is a life of striving, a life of work, a life filled with good work. It's satisfying, enjoyable, and fruitful. And so if you desire an office, what you desire is authority in order to serve. And there is no basis for authority apart from service. God gives authority to man in the dominion mandate over the physical creation in order for that man to serve God 
to serve his wife, to serve his children, and to be able to go out and to bless others with voluntary exchange. And so the dominion work is used for blessing of others and the glory of God. Service to God, service to neighbor, service to self. And so that idea that if you desire an office, you desire a good work. And so if you want to be able to do more work, an office is about power to be able to do more good work. Verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless. So, blameless. What does that mean? If it means sinless, there are no men fit for office except for the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are already dead. If that's the case, let's skip the nomination process and I should resign. If that is not the case, if instead blamelessness is something less than sinlessness, then perhaps we can have officers. And perhaps then we can see the church built. And so, what is blamelessness? I want to posit for you that blamelessness has to do with the idea that there is not an outstanding charge that is left unresolved, and there's a time limit on when there was something that was a scandal that violates one of the qualifications. So, some people will say that blamelessness requires a certain standard of life through the whole life of a person. Well, Paul was a murderer, and he was an apostle. All apostles are elders. So, if he was a murderer, then he was never fit for the office of apostle. So, if we see the approved examples as helping us to see what we should view these qualifications as, then what we need to understand is that you can violate the qualifications at some point in your life, and it is possible to reform and exhibit the positive qualifications for some period of time, and that is sufficient evidence for you to be fit for office. Now, one of the reasons it's difficult to raise up elders is because we don't like forgiving people, and we don't like letting people forget the ways they've failed. And so what we have to be willing to do is to say, here is a past sin, it has been repented of, restitution has been given as far as humanly as possible, and for some time there has been a display of the positive qualification. So the question is, how much time? So if that's the case, we have to not hold on and not forever, not forever detract from the honor due to people who are qualified. So if we're aware of failings, we have to be willing to consider what is the biblical standard for dealing with these things. So what I want to put forward to you is if we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, then we have to view there as being a time that is sufficient for the displaying. So I think if you look through Scripture for something that will give a time frame, you are going to find things to talk about days, weeks, you can find hours in morning and evening too, but I mean, generally people don't think that qualification for office is displayed in the morning and evening. So we have the days, the weeks, we have hours, we have morning, evening. None of those seem to be long enough. There are months, it doesn't still seem to be long enough. God gave the moon for months, right? There are years. We see a seven-year period. We see quarterly things or, or perhaps triannually things in terms of the feasts, right? We can also, we can see a seven-year period. We can see a 50 or 49-year period. And so, also, there's millennium. The millennium is referred to. So, if we look at these things, I think we can generally cut out the millennium as the requirement. And I think everyone will agree that anything less than a year 
would be quite difficult to look at. Now, that's just me making things up, right? That's me making things up. So then we go, well, how do we not just make things up? That seems obvious on its face. It has prima facie plausibility. But what is the basis that we could look for? So I want to suggest that there's one text in all of the Bible that helps us to think about the evaluation of new covenant duties. One. And it's Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. If you find any more, let me know. I would love to consider them. But I think this is the only one. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Before being assigned any public business, he needs one year to deal with this new public duty. How can you evaluate a man's ability to lead in his own home in less than a year? It would be absurd. Do you need seven years? It kind of feels reasonable. You go, seven years? It's like a master's degree plus a bachelor's degree, maybe. But those are not in the Bible. So, do you find a seven-year testing period anywhere? So the length of time, I posit, I think that covenant tests and the idea of letting people focus on new covenant duties before giving them public business is one year. I don't think that's a stretch. I think this text obviously teaches, allow this man to focus on his private business of running his home for one year before he gets public business. That's the plain meaning of the text. Now the application over into public office in church, well, we're moving from one institution to another. We go from the state over to the church. And so, in order to have these things on display, you need to put forward for at least one year the qualifications, and I'm basing that on that text. If you have an objection, write it down. If you have speaking rights, let's talk about it. We'll talk about that more in future sermons. So, blamelessness involves not having violated one of these qualifications um, in a period of a year and not allowing outstanding things to go unresolved. And so this idea that you go through a Matthew 18 process when something is dealt with. The husband of one wife. The literal Greek is a one-woman man. So the husband of one wife uh, obviously prevents polygamists from entering office, which may be an increasing concern in America across the next decade. And so as the destruction of marriage occurs, and as the civil magistracy is no longer used to uphold marriage, we see that as something to be concerned about. Now, that can be sometimes used to say, if you've ever had any sexual indiscretion in your life, you're disqualified. It can be used to say, if you've ever been divorced, you're disqualified. And so, I want to put forward that the point here is not to say, if you've ever had a sexual indiscretion, that you are disqualified, or if there's any sort of past problem with marriages. The issue is, are you now exhibiting faithfulness to your wife. If there is use of pornography, if there is adultery, if there is behavior that shows forth flirtatiousness in a, in a way that is unbecoming, these are things that we should say, this person is not fit for office. Get under control. Show yourself to be a one-woman man. And so that needs to be put under control. You need to display yourself to be able to exercise self-control. 
I think that this is likely to be the thing in our age that is going to disqualify people. And so the issue is you need to remember if you were ever tempted to pornography use, that what that is doing is it destroying your capacity to do more good works. You are making yourself useless. You are throwing away service to Christ. You are destroying the ability of the church to properly organize. And so you need to get control of yourself for the sake of good works. There will be an eternal weight of glory that comes from the proper usage of your body. And there is a throwing away of opportunity when you use it improperly. Time is limited. We must redeem the time. And so I charge you to self-control. Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. The word temperate is nephalion. I think it's better translated serious. I would encourage you to write that down. And if we consider nephalion, what does that mean? So temperate, you know, you, you know, if you're not drunk, you're typically more serious than if you're drunk. Right? Temperance is sort of the thing. Nephalion has more to do with the seriousness, a focus on accomplishing work, doing things, being serious-minded. Um, you can talk about it being watchful. There's another way of translating it. So this idea of being serious-minded, clear-minded, you're thinking clearly. So you can see the connection to temperance. Uh, it's not a awful translation, but I think this helps to get the point across better. Um, the next word, sober-minded, you put temperate and sober-minded next to each other, you go, how much do we have to talk about alcohol? That's the first impression that you have here. Well, sober-minded, uh, this word is sophronin, and sophronin is the same root as wisdom, okay, sophos, or sophia. So, sophronin is, you could translate it as wise or prudent. Wise or prudent. And so this idea of being sober-minded, it also has to do with thinking. So this sort of, okay, so you're serious, and now we get to Sophrona, and we're thinking about the idea of, of you, you are serious-minded, you're thinking about how to do things that matter, and then being prudent is, and you select means well. You select means well. Okay, so prudence, wisdom, a knowledge of the means to the good. So you could sort of say mission-focused, goal-oriented would be the, the serious part, and the idea of selecting the means to accomplish the mission well. And then it says of, of good behavior. So good behavior, that sounds sort of like you, know, you tell kids, be good, behave, right? So the of good behavior uh, sounds a lot like uh, be mild-mannered, Right, and that's what the modern church largely is. Mild-mannered people teaching mild-mannered people to be more mild-mannered. So the word here is cosmion. The word is, is cosmion. Well-behaved is a loose translation of cosmion. The, you, know, you think about the word cosmos, the, the, the ordered creation, the cosmos. Cosmion has to do with the idea of you can, you're an effective administrator. You're an excellent organizer. You are able. You are competent. You are capable. This is similar to the requirement in Exodus 18 that an elder have kail, that he's an able man, right? So that Hebrew word kail is, is similar. We translate, you know, man of valor, man of kail, this competence. And so the, the ability to get things done to organize things. So you've got to be mission-oriented. You have to be 
why is it selecting means to accomplish the goal, and you have to be effective as an administrator, competent. Does that seem like, does it seem like bad, quali does it seem like unreasonable as qualifications for somebody you're saying, this guy is going to lead in the church? Shouldn't, cer certainly shouldn't be serious, shouldn't be good at selecting means, definitely shouldn't be an effective organizer. Right? The, the, the denial of them seems obviously absurd on its face. And so, what man here doesn't want to be that? Who, who doesn't want to be focused on a goal or know how to pick good means or, you know, do it well? I don't see any hands going up like that. So it seems like we all acknowledge that these are legitimate things that every man should pursue. This is a blueprint for godly manhood. So this lays out for us how to be more Christ-like, how to be more effective, how to be men of valor in the faith, now, it goes on from there uh, to build on it. But those three, seriousness, prudence, and competence. You know, if a church doesn't have godly, manly elders, it is going to breed effeminacy. Do you think the modern church is effeminate? If that's the case you might want to examine the elder boards at churches and ask, do they have serious, prudent, and competent elders? Because the way they run their own house is a prophecy of how they're going to run the church. How they lead their wives is a prophecy of how they are going to lead and disciple in the church. And so... What you see in terms of the work that they have in their household and the work that they have in leading their wives is going to give you a sense of how they're going to work in the church. And they will make their disciples like them. So, Nephalian, Sophronin, and Cosmion are required. Now, from there... After the good behavior, after the Cosmion, it says hospitable and able to teach. So hospitable is, is literally um, loving strangers, philo, xenon. And so the idea of hospitality, letting people into the home, people from outside of the home, bringing them in, and using the goods of the home in order to bless them. The, the giving of, of food, the giving of a place to rest, the, the giving of water, the giving of, of company. And then there is the ability to teach displayed there. So people often wonder, how are you going to see this person's competency at teaching? Well, if they're hospitable, lots of people over time are going to come into their home. And then, when you're hospitable, there's opportunity for discussion around the table. There's also family worship. And there's a way of being able to view in. You can see the family. You can see the teaching. You can see how they run the home. Opening up the home is an intimate thing, and it makes it so that you're on display. It displays what you actually build. It's a lot easier to put on a show coming to church than it is to put on a show when people are coming to your house. You can do it. You can have them over a lot. That show is going to either turn into reality or the show will unravel. So hospitality is an opportunity to show the government of the church and to show didacticon, competence in teaching. Now, teaching, and I want to I go to 2 Timothy uh, 3 for just a second. 2 Timothy 3. Teaching gets broken up into pieces. Alright, so 1 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 
16 and 17. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. That word doctrine there is the same Greek root. And so that, that Greek root, um, didasklon, uh, relates to didacticon. I'm sure you can hear the similarity. Um, so that idea, we get the word didactic from that. Okay, so this idea of, of teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right, so the completeness of the man of God is what the teaching does. The equipping thoroughly of the man of God for every good work. So the teaching is for the equipping of the saints for ministry. And they are to be made complete by it. For that teaching to be good, when you think about teaching, the teaching office includes teaching doctrine, which has to do with showing differences with clarity, and then there's also exhortation, which has to do with trying to get people to be strong in applying the word. And so we saw the four words that are there for what the the word of God is profitable for. It was teaching, rebuke, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So the teaching is doctrinal explanation. It is laying things out with clarity, with organization, and that's how the capability of teaching is displayed. Can you teach clearly? Can you organize it? Then there's rebuke and correction. Rebuke is telling people, put off this sin, and correction is telling them, put this on. Right. So you say, put off greed, put on industry and generosity. And so that's the rebuke and then the correction. And then there's the instruction in righteousness, the padia in righteousness. Now, we've been going through Proverbs. And so you remember the word misar and the word padia. Those align. Those, are, those have the same meaning. So instruction, it's training in righteousness. And so the word padia, you've heard this from me, right? Padia is one of those words that it would not be strange to find a book that's multi-volumed about the word padia. Right? It's one of these words that talks about, it's about teaching, it's about instruction, it's about the inculcation of things, it's about training, it's how to make somebody into a mature man. It's about the idea that there's a culture that someone is enculturated into. And so this idea of the instruction or the training. So the word of God is, is, is effective for that. So you, you're looking for that kind of behavior. And this, this one last thing here about the, the competence in in teaching, right? So that's going to display itself in terms of, of, of the household. There are four titles that are given to off to elders. Right? They're, they're called elders. They're called teachers, which is that same root, the, the daskalon or, or the dacticon, the, the same root there. There's the title of pastor and the title of overseer or bishop. So elders are called elders because they're to be mature. Right, you, have, you can have children in the faith, young men in the faith, you can have fathers in the faith, and of the fathers in the faith, some of them are called to be elders. They are the ones that are the gray heads. Forgive the absence of gray hair. You don't know, maybe I die. So, <laughs> then, in addition to the title of elder pointing to maturity, there is the teacher, right? So we have to deal with the, the prophetic work of clearly teaching truth and distinguishing it from error. The pastoral work in terms of the concern for the flock, so the the desire to pursue relationship, to be concerned about the well-being of individuals, the willingness to chase people down when they're 
going away from the flock, the willingness to engage on things, to spend the time, to, to guard the boundary so that wolves don't get in, and to guard the boundary to try to prevent the sheep from leaving inappropriately. This idea of holiness and distinction from profanation and the willingness to self-sacrificially serve and to pray for the people of God. That's the pastoral work. And then there is this oversight or the, the, the bishop, the episkopos is the way that the office is referred to back in verse 1, episkopos. And so you have this oversight, and that points to the kingly work, the sitting on courts, the, the judicial element of it, the leading, the administrating. And so that, that is the work. And so an elder is to be a teacher and a pastor and an overseer. So we see these terms used interchangeably for the same office. And so this competence in teaching is the thing that, in particular, the office of elder is to apply. And that teaching is going to be what's used in the pastoral care. And it's going to be what's used to make judgments in oversight. So hospitality gives a context to display teaching ability outside of public while at the same time having guests to be able to teach and to serve. And they can make judgment. And it's across multiple experiences, because generally, if you are being hospitable to a bunch of people, unless your house is enormous, which might show some Cosmion, but if you don't have an enormous house, you're probably having a lot of people see your teaching capability by being hospitable at multiple points in time, which means there's going to be a diversity of time points that people have observed. And so if there's a diversity of time points, there's sort of a better picture of the character of the man on display. So after teaching, there's these two triple lists. The two triple lists are sort of uh, mirror images of each other. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle. And sometimes it'll translate the next part, not quarrelsome, is peaceable. And then not, uh, not covetous or not a lover of money. And so you think about this, this is the same thing kings are warned against, right? The, the, the loving of, of wine is something that shows a pursuit of pleasure. And the word gentle there is a word that has to do with self-control, the ability to govern yourself. And so that's epiakeia, which William Perkins wrote an excellent little book on, that single word. He took that one word, I wrote a little 30-page book, and it's magnificent. You can find it, you can find it online. It's free. It's an excellent little book on Christian moderation or self-control. That little book uh, is laying that out. So you think about the enslavement to pleasure versus self-moderation or self-control, self-government. So kings are told to not multiply wives, which would be you know looking at sexual pleasure, trying to multiply sexual pleasure, as opposed to seeking to rule well. So then there is this call um, to not be violent, and on the other side, the call to be peaceable or not quarrelsome. So that's the use of power. Kings were said, don't multiply horses and chariots. Right? Don't, don't look to use coercive power. Don't use domineering behavior as the way of government. Government should not be through that. Instead, there should be the use of persuasion, the use of discussion, much discussion, willingness to engage in humble and open public discussion, and so that idea, not violence, but being peaceable. 
if somebody is physically um, violent or governed by anger, that would show that they don't have those qualifications. The idea of, of greed or filthy gain. So greed doesn't just mean that you want profit. Greed means that you want profit without regard to the property rights of other people. And so you can imagine how an elder who has a loose sense of property boundaries might not be particularly good to help to oversee the treasury of the church. And so somebody needs to display that they don't have a desire for ill-gotten gain. And so on the other side of that, they're not lovers of money. Being a lover of money, you think that money is the good. If you get money, then you have what's good. Well, no. Wisdom is the good, right? The knowledge of God is the good. And so having a disorderly desire for money disqualifies a person. So you have, on the one side, the idea of competence. Cosmion is partly displayed through the good administration of property. On the other side, if there is an inordinate pursuit of property, that disqualifies a man. And so some of the things you can look for, do they guard the Sabbath and are careful to avoid working on it as opposed to working improperly there? Do they throw off other duties instead of doing, uh, you know, instead of doing those duties? They pursue money. So is there, a, uh, is there a setting aside of time to govern the family well, to lead the family in daily family worship? Is there personal daily worship? Is there, are there those things, or are those things pushed off in order to make time for money making? Those would show a love of money over a love of wisdom. And so the, the behaviors to look for there are on one side a disrespect for property rights of other people, and on the other side there's the concern for not with an over rigor pursuing money but having a moderate pursuit and industry on display. Now, it goes to ruling the own, your own house well. Verse 4. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. So, the ruling of the house well, that would be an outworking of the serious, prudent, competence being applied to the home. This serious, prudent competence being applied to the home. That does two things. First, it shows, is he serious? Is he prudent? Is he competent? And is he applying those things to the right things? Is he seeing the garden of the souls of his children's heart and the garden of his wife as the gardens to tend to first? Or does he look to some other garden as the thing to apply himself to? Because you can be serious, and you can be prudent, and you can be competent, and put those things to the wrong thing. And that's one of the dangers you see in the Bible. You see Solomon, serious guy, prudent, new means to get stuff done. And he was an effective administrator. And where he directed that was wrong. Right? His disorder of desire made it so that he focused those gifts on something else. And so we have to look at the home. And looking at the home means that we have to overcome this desire to find somebody else that we don't know all the bad things about them. We have to look for people here. We have to look for people here, and we have to say, 
These are sinners, and we know their weaknesses. And we have to be willing to say, at the same time, we see qualification. And if we see qualification, then we're going to be seeing the home. We're going to be seeing how things are ordered. We're going to see their lives. And it's going to be over a long period of time. And so there's this ability across at least a year to examine these things and see evidence of the positive fruit. And that is very different from the Amazon Prime straight from seminary pastor. The shipping's free. Now, rules the house well. One who rules his own house well. So then there's explanation of what that good ruling includes. Now remember, by the way, the, the idea here, the word for household is oiku. And a household includes the marriage relationship, the estate, servants, and children. So governing those things well. Then you look at what are the most important things in the household? The children, having them in submission with all reverence. So there's a, an outward submission, and they give evidence that they inwardly respect this man. There's an outward submission, and there's evidence of inward respect. And that's going to be through positive signs of honor. Five. Verse 5, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, again, that word for house, oiku. If a man doesn't know how to take care of his household, wife, estate, children, servants. He doesn't know how to rule the oiku how will he govern? How will he take care of the church of God? Now that taking care language, that taking care language, that is a language that points to sort of the pastoral concern. There's the ruling, there's a word for, for ruling, ruling the house of God, and this idea of taking care of the house of God, taking care of his, ruling his own house and taking care of the church. So there's this oversight competence and there's also this pastoral concern. So again, it's where is his focus and does he have competence? So then, from there, the children having outward submission and signs of inward respect. Verse 6. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So if someone's a novice and they get promoted quickly, there's going to be, that's going to tend towards the raising up of the soul to think, I've been doing this very long, and I'm already better than you. It's kind of like when Bruce Jenner, when he claimed to be a woman for like less than a year, and then he got woman of the year. It was like, what have you guys all been doing? Right, that immediate grant there, it's absurd. Right? How about we give an insult to the entire half of the sex of women? Right? That, that entire group to claim that a man who's pretending to be that is the woman of the year. That is an enormous offense to women, and that agenda is absurd. But we also look at this idea, if you raise up a novice, you are doing a similar sort of insult to all the people in the church. You're saying, here's a new believer, and this new believer is somebody who is fit to govern all the other believers. And so that raising up of a believer in the early stages of their faith sets them up 
for pride. Now, there's a, on a negative side, think about this. One of the commands that's given uh, in the Old Testament for, for elders is they're not to give more than 40 stripes. And the reason not to give more than 40 stripes in terms of a discipline with the rod for the back of a fool is if you give more, you might start to think too lowly of your brother. And so there are things you can do to wrongly degrade someone else, and there are things you can do to wrongly raise yourself up, and those things both have the effect of making you feel like the ruling class is distinct from the other people. You end up with a clergy-laity distinction. And so that tendency towards the raising up of people too quickly or the raising up of people who are too young. In the Old Testament, a part of this was also the idea that you're not fit for the priesthood until you're 30. And so 30 years of age and being in profession for at least a year, those are the two time requirements. So 30 years of age and being in profession for at least a year, showing the qualifications, showing the qualifications for at least a year. What new believer do you know that day one of making a profession, getting baptized, was showing all the qualifications of an elder? So what's the probability that somebody's going to come in, make profession, have all the qualifications on display for a year, and then be nominated and tested and elected and ordained into office? And you're going to go, yeah, that that was good. That worked. We, We tested this guy thoroughly. So... It's almost certainly going to be more than a year from somebody making a profession. But the idea is there's a year of the positive display of the attributes of a person fit for the office. A year of the qualifications on display. So, not a novice. If a novice is raised up, it puffs up with pride. And we see that same sort of uh, way it degrades people in a similar way. Hopefully, for the memorable illustration point, the same way that making saying that Bruce Jenner was the uh, woman of the year is degrading to women on multiple levels. Now, verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, so... The other one is about pride and the same condemnation as the devil. And here there is a reproach and snare of the devil. So outside, he has to have a good testimony from those who are outside. Outside of what? Okay, is it outside of his own head? Outside of his own home? Outside of the church? Okay, so the common way of interpreting this is outside of the church. So we have to like take an opinion poll of the pagans. Positive or negative view? Favorable rating? What's the... What what favorability rating do we need? Plus three? It's hard to get more than a plus three for a president of the United States. What's the positive favorability polling rating that we have to get from the pagans to put a man into office in the church? This is an absurd interpretation. It does not require the approval of the pagans. If the pagans think well of an elder, that should cause you to pause. There's a you know, story. There's a an English rector who's riding the trolley day by day across several years, same people on, on the trolley year after year. When he died, these people found out that he was a minister. They went to his funeral and said, this is the kind of minister I like. We didn't even know he was one. The guy wasn't doing his job. You see the same people over and over again, and they don't know you're a minister. There's something wrong. You see the same people over and over again. That's a strategic opportunity to display Christianity 
to preach things, to talk to them in private conversation, to set things up in such a way that it's unlikely to result in them liking you unless they convert. And so the problem with this qualification is the more effective you are at evangelizing, the more you're taking your own base of support out of the pagan polling community that would think well of you. This is nonsense. This is the common interpretation. Commentary after commentary after commentary says this. It is absurd. It is not outside of the church. We do not need the approval of the pagans for a man to be qualified. And I've never seen a church do anything to verify that. They don't believe it. They just pretend like they believe it. Nobody does anything to verify that. So what does it mean? Well, certainly outside of your own head. But I think the obvious meaning, especially in the context, we've been talking about the household for a long time. Look back at the last few verses. Outside of the church, it's outside of the household. There has to be a good opinion of the man outside of the household. He has to govern his house well. His kids have to reverence him. And also, people outside of his household have to reverence him respect him, think well of him. Now, if he doesn't have a good testimony among those who are outside of his household, then what's going to happen is there's going to be a reproach of the devil in that there's going to be disunity in the church. There's going to be a snare. It's a trap. It's going to make it so that if there is a low opinion of this man and you let him through if there's not a respect for him, it's going to bring dishonor on the office and it's going to make the government of the church weak. That's the danger. That's the snare of the devil and that's the reproach of the devil. So, we look at that. These qualifications laid out give us a sense of what's called for. And the thing that you should look at carefully, you go, when you're examining yourself, are you leading your own kids in such a way that there's external submission and there is a respect? And then you also look at, okay, a one-woman man, what is your loyalty to your wife like? These are significant pieces that have to be considered. And there's a connecting piece when you get to the office of deacon. All the qualifications of the office of deacon apply to the office of elder. And so, verse 11, I want to jump there. It talks about the wives of deacons, and this is the qualifications of a wife of an elder. Verse 11, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Okay, so let's examine that. It's verse 11. So this idea of being reverent, being serious, godly, not slanderers. They don't, you know, in particular, the idea is they're not somebody who's going to make false accusations. Imagine this. You have an elder. He's involved in counseling. He's talking to people. His wife is aware of these things. His wife is perhaps there for some of it is like couples counseling. And then she's a slanderer. How quickly is that going to tear apart the church? Now, that word temp uh, temperate there is the same word that was up earlier with elder. It's nephalios, same root, right? The ending's different. So, nephalios. The idea, again, remember, is nephalios has to do with being serious. She's focused on getting things done. She's focused on the goal. She's focused on work. She's serious-minded. And then, 
faithful in all things. The word for faithful there is pistis, which can be translated faith or faithful. So having, she's like faithful in the sense of full of believing. Does she believe the faith? She has to be a believing wife. She has to make a profession as well. That's the idea. So faithful in all things, well, who can, who can meet that? Which, who has a wife here who is faithful in literally everything? Okay, so we go, well, what about most things? Or, I mean, it's fine. We can make it into a useless thing. It's totally unjudgeable. That's, that's, that's the danger as we tend towards that. We're supposed to things that are able to be determined. We have a tendency to make everything useless by trying to say, generally the case, sometimes, in some ways. So she has to profess the faith at all points, just like the deacon. That's the idea. So the deacon is required to hold to the mystery of the faith. He doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't have to have the gift of teaching in the same way that an elder does. So the wife of an elder or a deacon has the same sort of qualification. They don't have the qualification of didacticon. They don't have to be able to teach. So she is to be she is to be reverent or pious. She is to be one who does not slander. She controls her tongue and avoids uh, malicious gossip or slander. She is serious-minded and she has a credible profession of faith. So you look at your house, is your wife that? If your wife is not that, you are not governing your wife well enough to be fit. And we should consider, you, you consider that you bring your wife under some scrutiny when you accept that nomination. And the question is, does the wife meet that qualification? Now, again, you ship somebody in from seminary. How well do you know their wife? How well do you know their children? You, you can't. It's absurd. The church is supposed to raise up its own elders and its own deacons. It's supposed to train them. And in the training process, there's a visibility into the home because one of the qualifications is hospitality. And so there's an ability to see into the home, to see the wife, to see the children, to see what the man is doing. And hospitality is the place where he displays the teaching. So I'd like to, that's the overview for thinking about officers to begin there. Talk about deacons another time. I want to pause there and give opportunity for comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights and trying to give some significant time there because I expect there to be questions or comments. Mr. Cordova. Thank you for your teaching, Albert. Um, just a clarifying question. I think it'd be edifying. You mentioned that a newlywed man should take a little year off for managing his household well and getting used to that new role. Um, but also, the role of an elder is that he is to be married, uh, or that he is to be the man of one wife. Uh, so, a single man, therefore, is not qualified for the office of If a single man is called to singleness, then he can enter office as a mature person with their house in order. If a man is not called to singleness and is seeking marriage, he should get married and then seek public office. Think about this. If a man's called to marriage and then the church keeps him busy so he can't get married, how are we serving that man well? So, 
Other comments, questions, objections? This is too easy. Just can't be this much agreement about this. Okay. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word. We ask that you would build us up in the knowledge of you. We ask that you would help us to be transformed, to be renewed after the image of Christ, that we would be like this man fit for office, that we would see the qualifications in the men here, that we would be matured and grown into this. Father, I ask that you would help us to be blameless, to be one-woman men, to be serious and prudent and competent. You would help us to be hospitable to each other. You would help us to have competence in teaching and to be able to display that in appropriate places and times. I ask that you'd help us to not be slaves to pleasure or to be violent in our attitudes or greedy for ill-gotten gain, but rather that you'd help us to be self-controlled and peaceable and rather than lovers of money, lovers of you, to be lovers of wisdom, philosophers. I ask that you would help us to rule our houses well, to rule our children well, to see them in outward submission and also to inwardly respect and therefore show displays of respect. I ask that you would help us to be stable and to mature in the faith and to be able to display qualifications across time. So Father, I ask that you would bless us with humility and help us not be puffed up with pride. I ask that you would help us to have good testimony with each other, to honor each other. I ask that you would help us to be safe from the snares of the devil, to be not ones who fall into his trap. And so, Father, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.